Let us pray. Almighty and everlasting God, whose will it is to restore all things in thy well-beloved Son, the King of kings and Lord of lords, mercifully grant that the peoples of the earth, divided and enslaved by sin, may be freed and brought together under his most gracious rule, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. I don't know how many of you are familiar with the children's author, Roald Dahl. He's a French um, author, and he's written a number of wonderful children's stories, and one of my favorites is The Upside-Down Mice. How many of you are familiar with Roald Dahl? Anybody out there? Some, oh, well, several of you are then. It's a wonderful story. It's a story about an old man, an 86-year-old man by the name of Laban, who lives in a house that experiences a mice infestation. And Laban doesn't know what to do about it. He tries every trick in the book to get rid of the mice, but they're rather ingenious, and they manage to outwit him at every turn, until finally he develops a plot by which he is going to best these vermin. And what he does is one day while the mice are asleep, he comes in and he takes every stick of furniture in the house and he glues it to the ceiling. Uh, All the lamps, all the furniture, all the tables, you name it, everything. And what happens is that the mice come out at night to play and they look around and the world for them has been turned upside down. Everything is on the ceiling. And the mice say to themselves, well, this won't do. They cannot live in a world that's been turned upside down. And so what do they do? They all decide that they are going to stand on their heads because by standing on their heads, then the world will be right side up. And all of the blood rushes to their head and they all pass out. And Laban comes in with a dustpan and a broom, sweeps them up, and out the door they go. And the moral of the story is this, when the world is turned upside down, remember to keep your feet planted firmly on the ground. Well, that's the world in which we're living, isn't it? As we've been talking about for the past couple of weeks, we've been talking about a world that has been turned upside down, and how do we live right side up in that kind of an environment? How do we do that? And that's what we've been studying, how we do that. The Bible is the means by which we can understand. It is, I said, our instrument panel by which we can understand how we are to truly live. It gives us a true picture of the world, not this distorted image of an upside-down world. We talked about the Bible's depiction of creation, that God made a world that was good, a world that was orderly, He brought order out of chaos. We're told the Spirit of God hovered over the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. It was a balanced universe. It was a beautiful creation, and God was pleased with it. But unfortunately, we said, we look at the world today, and that picture of paradise that we find in the opening chapters of Genesis is not an accurate picture of our world today. Our world is not balanced. Our world is filled with confusion and chaos and violence and discord. And we wonder, no pun intended, what in the world went wrong? And we said last week that what went wrong was us, we human beings. Because of all the things that God made, the pinnacle of his creative activity was mankind. You and I were unique among the creation because we were made in the image of God. 
We are a reflection of His glory and His majesty and His creativity. And we were representatives of the whole of creation. We were God's regents, second only to Him, higher, in fact, the Bible says, than even the angels in terms of significance and importance. One day the scripture says, you and I will sit in judgment over the angels. So we are a reflection of God's glory and majesty, but the problem we said was that mankind was not satisfied with being number two. I think I quoted the poem last week, it takes more grace than I can tell to play the second fiddle well. We didn't like being number two. We wanted to be number one. What was the temptation of Eve in the garden? That if you eat of the tree, you will not die. You will be what? Like God. You'll be the master of your own fate. You'll be the captain of your own destiny. Destiny. You'll be answerable to no one. And the result was that mankind, we're told, fell from grace. We disobeyed God. We violated His law, the restriction that was put in place for our well-being. And we said that evil sought an opportunity, the way that evil distorted God's word. God had actually said to the man and the woman, you may eat of any tree in the garden, any tree in the garden. This is a garden filled with delectable fruits. You may eat of any of them except for one. That one is reserved just for me to remind you that I am God and you are not. But otherwise, at it. It's like Willy Wonka in the chocolate factory. Have at it. But mankind was not satisfied with that. Evil sought an opportunity. Evil came in and said, did God say you must not eat of any tree in the garden? Not what God said. God said you may eat of any tree in the garden except for one. Evil came in and said, God actually said you cannot eat of any. And all of a sudden that seed of doubt was planted. Doubt as to God's goodness. Doubt as to God's word. And it produced a poison fruit. It produced a fall, the fall of mankind. Today I want to talk a little bit more about the fall, but then I want to go on to talk about God's remedy for it. This is what has gone wrong with the world. It is the fall of mankind. What was the direct result of the fall? Well, God had made it very clear. If you eat of the tree, which I've told you not to eat, you will what? You will die. You will die. On the day you eat of it, you will surely die. Uh, Jesus um, refers to this later on in the Gospels, and we're going to come to that. But certainly we find it already at the beginning in the book of Genesis, where God says this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 17. Now, someone might argue, well, they ate of it, but on the day they ate of it, they didn't die. Well, they didn't die physically, but they died otherwise. This is what Paul means in Ephesians chapter 2. When he's writing to the Ephesians, he says, but as for you, you were dead in your trespasses and in your sins in the way you used to walk. Paul is saying that we may be physically alive, but in terms of our relationship with God, in terms of our relationship with our Creator, we are dead. We are dead to Him. Which means that the spiritual condition of mankind is not that we are merely sick. You know, sometimes we sing hymns that imply the idea that we're, we're sick as a consequence of the fall. Sin sick and sorrow worn. But the Bible's depiction of it is much graver than that. We are dead. And you can see this at the beginning of the Bible. You can see this in Genesis. How it is that the man and the woman die. They die in three ways. 
They were made in the image of God. We're told that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, there is a sense in which human beings are made up of three parts. We are made up of a soul, a spirit, and a body. Now, the body seems to be the thing that we are most concerned with. That is the thing that we spend so much time on. We wash our bodies, we care for our bodies, we tend our bodies, because we have a tendency to think that this life is all there is. The Bible is far more concerned with your spirit and your soul than it is with your body. This body, you're going to have it for maybe 90, 100 years. Your spirit, on the other hand, your soul, on the other hand, these things are eternal. Now, just for the sake of argument, let me go ahead and give you some definitions here. Uh, sometimes the spirit and the soul are conflated uh, by theologians so that the spirit and the soul are the same thing. Actually, I think if you read through the Old Testament, there is a distinction that is made between the spirit and the soul, at least in Old Testament Hebrew theology. The spirit is that part of us that is capable of having a relationship with God. You and I are spiritual creatures. God is spirit, for example. God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, they do not have bodies. They do not have flesh and blood in the same way that we do. Now, the second person of the Trinity does. He took on flesh, the incarnation. He became incarnated. But God is spirit. We're told that those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Human beings are spiritual beings. We were created for eternity, and the spirit is that part of us that is capable of having a relationship with our creator. It's our God consciousness, if you will. The soul in the Old Testament, sometimes in the New Testament, is used interchangeably with spirit, but in the Old Testament, the soul is that part of us that is, has personality. The Hebrew word for soul or soulish is the word nephesh. And we're told that there are even creatures other than human beings that are nephesh creatures, that have personality, as it were. Uh, if you've ever been a dog lover, you notice that sometimes dogs have a personality. And different dogs, different breeds of dogs, have different personalities. Well, there is a sense in which you and I as human beings have personality. But our personality is of a higher level, which is to say that you and I have a sense of right and wrong. A dog may know that it should not do something, but that's the consequence of training. It doesn't have an innate sense that there are some things that are right, intrinsically right, and some things that are intrinsically wrong. So for the sake of argument, I want to say that the soul today is that aspect of the human being that understands right and wrong, our moral character. And then, of course, there is the body, the flesh, sarks, what you and I can see, what we can touch, what we got up with this morning, what some of us washed and shaved this morning, the body. When God said to the man and the woman, if you eat of the tree, which I tell you not to eat of, you will surely die, he meant that death would come to them, not in just one sense, not just in a physical sense. The physical sense actually is not the worst kind of death. It's the other kinds of death that are far more serious. The spiritual death, the death of the soul, our moral reasoning. And you can see that in those opening chapters of Genesis. This is what their transgression did. The first thing that happened was that their spirit, that aspect of the human being that is capable of having a relationship with God, dies. You know how it's depicted in Genesis. We've talked about it many times in other classes. 
We're told that Adam and Eve enjoyed this intimate relationship with their creator. We're told that God would come walking in the garden in the cool of the day. That old hymn, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses and the voice I hear as I tarry there, the Son of God discloses and he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. That, that's the kind of an intimate thing. And that's why I've always said to you that Christianity is not so much about religion, it's about relationship. That's what Christianity is. It's not just about going to church and going through the motions and being confirmed and baptized and all of those things, which is not to say that those things are unimportant or insignificant. It's just to say they are not the heart and the soul. You can get rid of all of those things and you will still have Christianity. But if you get rid of the personhood, the person at the center of Christianity, if you get rid of Jesus Christ, then what? All the other things are worthless. Well, the first thing that died as a result of the fall was mankind's relationship with his creator. We're told that when God came walking in the cool of the day, of course, this is metaphorical language, but you get the image. It's an intimate relationship. We're told that Adam and Eve had done what? They had hidden themselves from God. See, they knew what they had done. And their transgression ruined that relationship so that they now hid themselves. You ever see a dog that hides itself when it's done something that it should not do? Like chewed something up or left behind a package that it should not leave behind on the carpet? What does it do? It hides itself. Even dogs know. Well, that's exactly what happened with the human beings. They hid themselves from God. That relationship, that intimacy, that trust that it existed was severed. The second thing that perished, of course, was their moral reasoning. That aspect of their being that understood right and wrong. So that when God said to Adam, what is it that you have done? The first thing that he wanted to do was to shift the blame. And you and I have been playing the blame game ever since. It's what we all do. Anytime somebody calls us on the carpet, anytime somebody accuses us of something, what's the first thing we want to do? We want to defend ourselves. We want to give a reason as to why we are not responsible for our own actions. The woman you gave me, she caused me to eat. They died in terms of their moral reasoning. And then ultimately, they died in terms of their bodies. You were taken from the earth, and unto earth shall you return. We say it every time there's a burial office here at St. Philip's. Earth to earth, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. See, that's the tragedy of the fall. But the greatest tragedy of the fall is that all of these things add them up and they equal alienation, separation, isolation. And that is exactly what happened to the man and the woman. We're told that they were expelled from the garden. They were expelled from paradise. They no longer had access to the tree of life. In fact, we're told that an angel with a flaming sword was placed at the entrance to the garden to prevent them from ever returning again. Now, all of this is a tragic story, but what makes it all the more tragic is that the Bible says that the decisions, the actions of the first man and the first woman not only affected them, 
It affected us. It affected all of their progeny. All successive generations now live in isolation, in alienation, in separation from God. We all live, as it were, outside the garden. Theologians refer to this as federal theology or the federal headship of Adam. Now, growing up as we have in America, you understand how this works. We have a federal form of government. We have a representative form of government. We have people that we elect to office and they go out and they serve on our behalf, don't they? And when they make decisions, those decisions, not made by us, but by our representatives, nevertheless affect us, don't they? If your representatives in Congress decide to raise taxes, does that affect you? Yes. If they decide to lower the taxes, does that affect you? Yes. It can affect you what? Positively or negatively? Well, Adam was the representative of the human race. In fact, that name, Adam, is an interesting word. It can be used as a proper name, Adam, but it can also be used as a name for the human race, Adam, which means humanity, mankind. So this first human being, this one made in the image of God, was really the progenitor of all the human race. He was our representative, and that meant that the decisions that he would make, for good or for ill, would inevitably affect the rest of us. Paul makes this very point in Romans chapter 5, verses 12 through 14. If you have your Bibles, you can underline these verses. It helps you to understand not only what has gone wrong with the world, but what God is going to do to correct the world. Paul writes, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So Adam is our representative, as our father in the faith, as it were, when he sinned, the disastrous effects of his disobedience had a trickle-down effect upon you and me. Somebody has described it this way, Reuben Torrey. It's like mountain climbers going up a mountain. They're oftentimes tethered together. The idea is that the strongest mountain climber, the guide, will always go first. <laughs> And those who are weaker will do what? They will follow and they will be tethered to him. But what happens if the lead hiker or the lead climber suddenly loses his footing and he falls? What is he going to do to those who are tethered to him down below? He's going to pull them with him. And that is exactly what Adam did with you and with me. He pulled us all down when he fell. Now, of course, somebody might say, well, I don't like that. I don't like the fact that I have to pay the consequences of Adam's sinfulness. I mean, maybe I would have done better than Adam. Well, it's unlikely that any of us would have done better than Adam. Adam was the perfect man. And if Adam, the perfect man, succumbed, the chances of you and I not succumbing are slim to none. But the result is that you and I now live outside of paradise, don't we? I mean, think about it. Adam and Eve were told 
were created from the dust of the earth and placed in the garden, in this beautiful environment, this protective environment, where they were to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of the created order. But then they were expelled from the garden because of their disobedience. Where were their children born? Where were Cain and Abel born? If you read through the book of Genesis, you begin to understand that Cain and Abel were not born in paradise. Because of the decisions of their parents and the actions of their parents, they were born outside of that protective custody. And you and I know this to be true. The decisions that you and I make as parents inevitably affect our children, don't they? They can affect them positively. They can affect them negatively. If you make a good financial investment, that's going to have a positive effect upon your family. If you make a negative, impact, negative decision, it can have a disastrous impact upon your family. We know how this works. And all of a sudden, God's law, which was intended for a blessing, became a burden. And mankind's will, mankind's ability, mankind's desire, mankind's longing to do the right thing was bound. You know, we sometimes talk about free will in our culture, but biblically speaking, none of us has free will. Did you know that? We have free choice. But we do not have free will. Free will and free choice are two very different concepts. Thomas Cranmer said, whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. You think about that. That's pretty profound. Whatever the heart desires, the will chooses and the mind justifies. So it's a matter of your heart. Where is your heart? Because wherever your heart is, your will will choose it and your mind will eventually justify it. You and I make our choices freely, but the problem is that our heart is corrupt, and so whatever our desires are, they are sinful desires, and that's what our will is going to choose. The only person who ever had free will was Adam himself. Adam was, in the words of St. Augustine, passe pacare. He was able to sin. He hadn't yet, but he was able to do it. But after he had sinned, he and all of his children became, in the words of St. Augustine, non posse, non peccare, not able not to sin. And you and I know this to be true, don't we? For the very things we want to do, we do not do, and the very things we hate, these are the things that we do. How many of you relate to that? See, that's the human condition, and that's why. Because Adam fell, and in Adam, we all fell as well as his children. And the fall not only affected Adam and Eve and their children, but the consequences of mankind's fall affects the whole of creation. Remember, mankind not only represented, Adam not only represented all of his descendants, he represented the whole of creation. He was God's region over the created order. Listen to how the Apostle Paul puts it in Romans chapter 8. Paul says, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in pains of childbirth. The whole of creation, as a consequence of the fall of man, groans as in travail. 
You say, well, how does that look? Well, we said God created a good world. He gave man dominion over that world. Man was to care for that world, to tend that world. God gave him a patch of paradise, and he said, turn it into a garden. And that is exactly what he did. Mankind took a wilderness and turned it into a beautiful garden. But then when mankind fell, instead of caring for the creation, mankind began to abuse the creation. You know, it's unfortunate that so many of the things that we deal with in our world today get tied up in political issues. So that Republicans are not supposed to care about the environment. That's what the Democrats do. It's really unfortunate that we tie all of these issues up. When people ask me, well, what is your political party? I'm going to tell you what my political party is right here and now. So this may alienate several of you when I tell you what it is. What is my political party? Christian. I'm neither Republican nor am I Democrat. I'm a true independent in the sense that I'm a Christian. My worldview has to be governed as a follower of Jesus Christ by the scriptures. So I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. There are many things that the Democrats do that really upset me. But certainly one of the things that upsets me that I agree with them on is a care for the environment. Now, not a worship of the environment. That, that's a danger in and of itself. But as human beings, as made in God's image, we have a responsibility to care for the created order, which God declared to be good. And we haven't done a very good job of that. We should be caring for the animal world. Now, mind you, I think that there's a little too much of this in our day and in our age. Sometimes animals get elevated almost to the level of human beings. When I see people walking around with dogs and strollers, I always, you know, I'm a, I'm a priest. I mean, I love babies. I, I want to go around and say, oh, you're, oh, it's a <laughs> chihuahua in there. What in the world? When I see people doing that sort of thing, I find that appalling. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. But nevertheless, you and I should care for the created order. We should care for animals. But so often we do what? We exploit them for our own means. It's not a, care, it's not a case of having dominion over them. It's a case of abusing them. And perhaps the worst reflection of all of this is that we no longer care for one another. Instead, we abuse one another. And while it may be true that there is some suffering in the world that is the result of natural catastrophes, typhoons, floods, hurricanes, and so forth, let's be honest, the vast majority of the suffering that the world experiences today is not the result of these things. The vast majority of the world's suffering and misery and agony and hunger and pain and violence is the direct result of what? Us. All of creation moans as in travail, longing, groaning as in childbirth for redemption. So what needs to happen? Well, I can tell you very simply, if you haven't already figured it out, what needs to be happened is we need to be rescued. We need to be rescued. God needs to reach down into this miserable, broken situation and snatch us out of it. Because you see, we're incapable of saving ourselves. 
we'd like to believe that we're going to be able to pull ourselves up. There was actually a time in the history of the world when people believed that. The dawn of the 20th century, many people believed that the world was getting better and better. World War I was believed to be the war that would end all wars, but it didn't. Less than 30 years later, another war engulfed the entire world, and a whole new generation of young men perished as a consequence. And I think many of you who grew up in a simpler time, perhaps, as you look at the world today, as you look at the great confusion and the violence, and you look at the political rancor that exists in our country today, you would probably say that the world is not getting necessarily better. What do we need? We need to be rescued. So there's a creation, there is a fall, but the Bible says there is also redemption. There is also redemption. And what I want to talk about now is how it is that God actually rescues us. And the verse that I want to use to launch us on this subject is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and following. If you have your Bibles, you want to pull them out and you want to read these verses. They are so important. I know you're familiar with John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Those are great passages, but I want you to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15 because I want you to understand not simply that God saved us. I want you to understand specifically how God saves us. Now, I know you're going to say, well, I know how God saves us. He sends his son. That's true. I want you to understand how Jesus saves us, why it is that Jesus alone must save us, why he alone is the only way for us to be saved. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 and following. We read these words, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those belonging to Christ. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. As in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. When you begin to talk about God's great rescue mission, which is what I preached on this past Christmas, if you were there, you need to understand first and foremost that God is under no obligation to save us. God doesn't have to save us. He created the world good. He created a perfect man. He gave that man free will. He gave that man a great opportunity, a great privilege to be the regent over the whole created order. And man messed it up and messed it up royally. And God would have been perfectly within his rights as the sovereign Lord of the entire universe to simply wash his hands of all of it and say, well, that was that. Let's go on and do another world. Let's try this in a different way. So you need to understand that as sovereign Lord of the universe, God is under no obligation to save us. We have a tendency to think, well, we're nice people. Of course God would want to save us. If you think that, you've never really understood yourself. <laughs> You've never understood what the Bible says about human nature. We are not good people. Good people don't need saving. It's precisely because we are not good people. You know, if you ask the vast majority of people today, even many Christians today, are people, are human beings, men and women, basically good or basically evil, what do you think they're probably going to say? People are basically good. 
You know, Johnny Mercer put it so well, accentuate the positive, eliminate the negative, and don't mess with Mr. In-Between. You've got to have a positive mental attitude about the world and about life, otherwise how are you going to get through? Well, unfortunately, that is not the biblical picture of the human condition. And the human condition can never be rectified as long as we think that we can do it on our own because we're good people. What the Bible teaches us is that we are fallen people. We are rebellious people. That's what the fall was all about. It wasn't a mistake, folks. It's almost unfair to call it a fall because that implies that they simply tripped. It was rebellion, pure and simple. This is one of the reasons why in the Lord's Prayer we say, forgive us our what? Our trespass. It means that we have trespassed into God's territory. We have declared war on God. And let me tell you something, if you declare war on God, you're not going to win. And that's the biblical picture of the human condition, and that is why the whole of creation moans as in travail. So we need to understand that God is under no obligation to save the world. He acts in love to save the world, not because it deserves saving, but because he, by nature, is a loving deity. For God so loved the world. Not just us. Of course he loves us most because we're the pinnacle of his creative order, because we are made in his image. But John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world. And the word that is translated as world there is cosmos. God loves the world, and he's determined to redeem it. He is determined, in the words of Bishop N.T. Wright, to get the Adam Project back on track. Now, that's critical. God wants to get the Adam Project back on track. And that is why, if you're going to fix the creation, and the creation is messed up because of the first Adam, and you want to fix the creation, what do you have to do? You have to send a second Adam. A second representative. Somebody else who will do what the first Adam failed to do. It's like restarting the computer. <laughs> You've got to go back to the beginning and start the program all over again. And that, in essence, is what God has decided to do. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 5. What God does is that he sends another Adam. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. So here's how God decides to save this broken, messed up creation. He decides to send a new Adam. And that is what Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is the new Adam. That's how he's described in the New Testament, to come and do what the first Adam failed to do. So you can see some remarkable similarities between Adam and Jesus Christ in the Bible. Four things that I want you to recognize, similarities between Adam and Christ. First of all, they are both representatives. Adam is a representative of the human race. He is Adam, proper name, but also Adam, humanity as a whole. And the decisions that he made, what? 
affected us. The new Adam is also a representative. And the decisions that he makes will likewise affect others. Both Adam and Christ become federal heads of the race. The decisions they make not only will affect themselves, they will affect all of their progeny, and they will produce a new race, a new race of men and women, ones that are capable of either being faithful or unfaithful. Both Adam and Christ have covenants made with them by God. You know what a covenant is? If you live in a gated community, you probably know what a covenant is. It's an agreement. God made an agreement with the first Adam that if you live in this garden and tend it and eat of any tree that you want except for the one and stay in your proper place, what? You will be a blessing to the whole of the creation. You will be my region over creation. But if you fail in that, what happens? There will be death. There will be expulsion. God made a covenant with Adam. God made a covenant with Jesus Christ when he sent him to earth. And that covenant was that if Jesus Christ was obedient, faithful, he would undo the curse that Adam brought upon the race. Fourth similarity. Both Adam and Christ pass on to the others the effects of their disobedience or their obedience. So you can see Jesus is the new Adam. But while there are great similarities, there are also profound differences. Adam was disobedient. His disobedience brought what? It brought death, death to the entire human race. Christ's obedience brings life. It brings life. What is Christ's obedience? When we talk about Christ's obedience, what was his obedience? Adam's disobedience was the aid of the tree that he was forbidden to eat from. What is Christ's obedience? Christ's obedience is the cross. Look at Philippians chapter 2. This is one of those great chapters of the Bible in a relatively short epistle, one of the shortest of Paul's epistles, but it's an important one. In Philippians chapter 2, we are told as Christians, this is Paul writing, that we are to have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus, who he says was in the form of God, but did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing and took the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why was it that Adam and Eve disobeyed? To exalt themselves, to be like God. Not merely to be regents, but to be sovereigns over the created order. Jesus, in being obedient, does what? The exact opposite. We're told that though he was in the very nature equal with God, he humbled himself. And he became obedient. He did not exalt, but humbled himself, and he became obedient. Whereas Adam was disobedient, he became obedient, what? Even unto death. Even death upon a cross. That's what God was looking for in Adam, and he didn't get it in Adam, but he sends a new Adam, and that's what he gets in Jesus Christ. He gets obedience even unto death. Adam's disobedience brings bondage to sin. The very things we want to do, we can no longer do. We are non posse, non pecari. But Christ's obedience brings freedom from sin. 
we are now able not to sin. Doesn't mean that we won't. But now, by the working of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us because of Christ, we are able not to sin. That's freedom, you see. That's deliverance from bondage. Adam's disobedience brings condemnation, judgment, expulsion. Christ's obedience brings justification. What is justification? It's judgment. But whereas Adam's disobedience brought judgment against us, guilt, Christ's obedience brings a judgment that is a declaration of what? Innocence. Not guilty. You know, you should never fear the judgment of Christ. It will be a day of judgment at the last. But if you are in Christ, for you it's going to be a day of vindication. It's going to be the day when God looks at you and looks at your life and everything that you've done. And what he looks and he sees is the person of Jesus Christ. And the gavel falls and what he says is not guilty. Adam's disobedience brings alienation, separation from God. Christ's obedience brings reconciliation. Listen to these wonderful words from Ephesians chapter 2. I know I'm skipping around a lot, but these are so important. It gives you a, a sense of the whole witness of the biblical story. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 11, Paul writes, Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh. Remember that at one time you were separated from Christ. That is separated from God. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Now listen to the words that he uses there. He says you were separated. Who likes to be separated? You were alienated. Who likes to be alienated? You were strangers. Who likes to be a stranger? See, the language there is very powerful. It's one punch after the other. He says, before Christ came, here's what you were in terms of your relationship with God. You were separated. You were alienated. You were strangers. And then he says this, you were without hope and you were without God in the world. That is the human condition. But now... Two of the most beautiful words in all of Scripture. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. You were once at war with God, but now because of Christ you are at peace with God who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. That's what the new Adam has done. The first Adam brought alienation, separation, despair. The second Adam brings reconciliation, hope, and salvation. Now that's how it is that Christ saves us. That's how he saves the race. The question we have to ask ourselves now is, how is this work of Christ's salvation imparted to us. That is to say, that's how he saves the race, but how does he save us as individuals? Because you see, this salvation has to be imparted to us as individuals. You have to be in Christ in order to be saved. 
Now, we are all in Adam by nature. How do we get in to Christ? Well, the Bible tells us how. How is Christ's work of salvation imparted to us the same way that sin is imparted to us? How is it that you became a sinner? How many of you are sinners out there? Let's see a show of hands. Some of you didn't raise your hands. How is it that you became a sinner, those of you who did raise your hands? How? You were born into it. You were OS positive. Why? Because your forefather in the faith was a sinner, right? You passed it on. This is not uncommon. We pass on all kinds of genetic things to our children. Sometimes you don't even need to have genes to pass things on. A mother who is addicted to drugs and uses drugs or uses alcohol can pass on fetal alcohol syndrome to her child, can't she? So we pass things on to our children. You're a sinner because your parents passed it on to you. You're a part of the race. You're a sinner by birth. How do you become a child of God? By birth. <laughs> Same way, you see. By a new birth. By a new birth. That's what John talks about in chapter 3 when he says the story about a man named Nicodemus who came by night. He was a Pharisee, he was a ruler of the Jews, and he came to Jesus. And he said, Good teacher, we know that you are a man who has been sent from God, for no one could do the things that you are doing unless God were with him. And Jesus turns to Nicodemus and he says, Nicodemus, unless a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of heaven. For the wind blows where it will, and you cannot tell where it is coming from or where it is going, so it is with everyone born of the Spirit. Unless you are born again, unless you have a new birth out of that old way into a new way, out of that old family of sin into the new family of righteousness, you will never see the kingdom of heaven. How is the work of Christ as the new Adam imparted to us by means of a new birth? Now I know Episcopalians slash Anglicans are a little uncomfortable with that language of born again. We think of born again Christians. Now what kind of image does that conjure up for a lot of people in our culture? Well, it conjures up these people that sort of walk around in Roman sandals and have beads and, you know, used to live out there in Berkeley in the 1960s, those Jesus freaks. Or it conjures up images of fiery preachers up there in the pulpit shaking their fists at people and telling them that they better get right with God and get born again. So we don't like that language of born again. But I want you to understand something. That is biblical language. And I also want you to understand this. There is no other variety of Christian than the born-again variety. Jesus was the one who said, unless a person is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So if you don't like that phraseology, take it up with him. Don't get angry with me. You have to be born again. That's how Christ's work as the second Adam is imparted to you as an individual. That's how you pass from death to life, from that way, from the way of the old Adam to the way of the new Adam. That is how you are grafted into this new family by means of a new birth. The first birth was natural. The second birth is supernatural. It is a result, sola gratia, by grace alone, God's undeserved, unearned favor. 
It is received how? Sola fide, by faith alone. By acknowledging the fact that you're a sinner, by placing your whole trust in Christ's righteousness and his finished work upon the cross as the full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation, and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. Sola Christus, by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. And when that happens, you suddenly pass from the old Adam to the new Adam. You pass out of that old race into a new race. A new race that is capable of sinning, but is also capable of righteousness. And now you're a representative as you make your way up the mountain, as it were. Even if you slip and you fall, because he never slipped and never fall, fell. He holds steady and can hold you fast even when you fall, lest you perish. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words, so let me go ahead and give you a picture. This picture is by Hans Holbein. Uh, he is probably best known for his famous court paintings of the Tudor royal family, Henry VIII and uh, Elizabeth and Mary and so forth. This painting was lost for centuries. It was recovered following the Second World War. And it was done at the time of the English Reformation. And it depicts the human condition and the hope that we have in the new Adam. You'll see on the center of the picture is man, homo. And as you can see, he's despairing because this is his old life. And what do you see over here on the far left of the painting? Adam and Eve, and the serpent, and peccator, sin, temptation. And as a result of the fall, what happens? Morph, death, death comes spiritually, morally, physically, death comes. And all of the Old Testament is nothing but what? A law. Up there on the top you can see the law, but it is a burden. But there are glimmers in the Old Testament of a future salvation. The story from the book of Numbers, the mystery of justification of the bronze serpent. Remember when God sent the fiery serpent into the camps of the Israelites to bite them? And Moses went and he pled. He was pleading to God. He said, provide us with some sort of an antidote. And God said, make a serpent of bronze, place it on a pole, and anyone who trusts and my appointed means of salvation will be saved. And Moses said, well, what else do we have to do? Nothing else, just trust in my appointed means of salvation. Even there in the Old Testament, you see there were glimpses. But you see, this whole side of the tree is what? It is barren. There is no life here. But the prophets, Isaiah, and the last of the prophets, John the Baptist, point to a new Adam who was to come, who would be obedient when the first Adam was not, Obedient what? Even unto death. The one who would be the Lamb of God. And by placing one's faith in the Lamb of God and God's work, which is gratia, only by grace, what happens? There is victory over death. The tree begins to bloom. There is new life. There is hope 
there is salvation. See, we live in a world that's been turned upside down, my friends. And what God has come to do in the person of Jesus Christ as the new Adam is to turn that world right side up. That's how God saves us, and he saves us for a purpose. I'm going to indulge you for a minute. I know I'm running out of time, but hang in there. He saves us for a purpose. Not just to deliver us from death, but so that you and I can live out our God-given task as his regents over the created order. We are called, 1 Peter says, to be a royal priesthood. What does that mean? You and I are called to be mediators between God and man. Now, you might say, well, there's only one mediator between God and man, and that is Christ Jesus. That is true, but we are his representatives, his ambassadors, his hands and feet on earth. That is to say, you and I have the responsibility of declaring the good news of salvation to a broken and fallen mankind. We are called to be a holy nation. That is to say, a new race of people. Not those who abuse and distort, but those who renew and restore. We are called to be God's sacred possession, His cherished regents, dispensers of light in the darkness. Are you doing that? Are you functioning as God's ambassador in this world? We're living in a world that is upside down. Billy Sunday put it best. This is our job as Christians. He said, the world is wrong side up. It needs to be turned upside down in order to be right side up. And that's what you and I were called to do. If you're a Christian today, that's how God has saved you. And that is what he has saved you for. Are you like those mice in the children's story, trying to stand on your head to fit in with the world and perishing as a consequence? Or are you a holy people, a holy nation, redeemed at countless costs, going out and by the way you live, by your witness, turning this weary old world upside down, and by turning it upside down, turning it right side up, because that's what it means to be the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise that you did not leave us in our desperate situation, but in your mercy you sent Jesus Christ to be a new Adam, to come and be obedient when the first Adam was disobedient, to be obedient unto death, even death upon the cross, that we, trusting in his finished work, might be reconciled to you, no longer strangers and aliens, but sons and daughters called to a great purpose to restore that which has been broken, to turn the world right side up. Grant us the grace, grant us the courage to do it, Lord, for the world's sake. Amen.